Hello and welcome to the Hacking State Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Bo Weingard. Bo Weingard is a social psychologist and executive editor of Aporia Magazine. Bo, welcome to the show. Uh, Thanks for having me. And just a point of clarification, is it Aporia, Aporia, like how do you stress the A? (laughs) I'm a bit of a Philistine about pronunciation, so I, I say Aporia, basically, but okay. maybe maybe aporia is better. I don't know. Well, I think aporia comes more naturally, but aporia yeah, is like you're right. It does. You know, yeah, a literal um, word. Uh, okay, so you are um, working with aporia now, and yes. previously when we spoke, uh, which was a couple of years ago on agora politics, um, mm-hmm. agora politics, uh, <laughs> you were um, a, a a then canceled academic. Um, who had sort of been exiled for some of your research interests and kind of kicked out of the small, um, I was it a university or a college? Yeah, college, small college. Where you were teaching at. Um, And so I guess before we get into everything that's going on with Aporia, and we're definitely going to cover a lot of that because I think that's the most interesting thing um, Mm -hmm. that you've been working on recently, is can we just give people a little bit of overview of sort of where you are now, uh, retrospectively, uh, you know, upon being forcibly removed from academia and and sure. just your reflections on that whole uh, ordeal. Yeah. So for people who don't know, I mean, essentially, it was my interest in human variation and, and more specifically, my candid assessment of the evidence on race and IQ, which led to my termination although there were other you know details here and there not worth getting into anyway but it Mm -hmm. it was i mean i I can't say unequivocally that's exactly what did it but i'm you know 95 percent certain so after termination um i bounced around a lot i did a lot of reading which i already was doing but i took the time that i wasn't teaching to do (laughs) to do more reading um, I edited for, uh, Quillette for a while Yep, and I wrote articles where I could, um, you know, of course I'm not going to write a mainstream article. I'm too toxic. New York times would have to retract it's the second it published it when they got mm-hmm. mobbed, especially after the, um, the, I mean, it seems so long ago now, but the, uh, Floyd, uh, situation and what was that summer of 2020 i suppose things got well steve saylor's still talking about it the ramifications of yes it. he is and and i think that i mean i think for good reason because that mm. that was an infl- I, I mean it was already getting worse I, I i think i i think i agree with saylor and that i would put the rise of what we've called the great awakening more in like the 2012 13 area but mm. certainly accelerated rapidly after the the floyd situation so anyway yeah things got worse so i'm you know i'm never gonna write for a mainstream outlet and i i never try (laughs) but i did you know i did jobs here and there focused on research um i'm writing books on the side but i won't really talk about those because I'm always worried that I'll tarry and not get them done. And then people will be like, Hey, why didn't you do that book? So <laughs> right, <laughs> to right. say I'm doing works on the side, but now my main focus is on, and I'll, I'll go with the Aporia. My main focus is on Aporia, um, editing, 
editing, writing, and doing podcasts and really focusing on some research for some longer pieces I would like to do. I mean, I've already done a piece that was, I think it was a 7,000 word piece on race realism, which took me a long time. Uh, I mean, obviously I know a lot of this stuff, but you always have to refresh your memory. And I Mm -hmm. actually had, I hadn't been reading about race that specifically for a year or so. So I had to really immerse myself back in that literature to write that article, which I'm really proud of. I like that article. Um, So I'm working on a couple more of those kinds of articles, like on immigration and demographic change, for example. And that's what I spend my time doing, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. Uh, Getting fired didn't change that. I continued to work like that because that's what I love to do. The only thing that really was you know like upsetting and quite lament well there are many things that are quite lamentable about getting fired but the only thing that really really injured me was i miss teaching i love teaching it was one of the more exhilarating things i could do uh, it gives you this kind of immediate feedback that you don't get from writing you know because yeah. writing you put it out there i don't know maybe some people tweet it and you're like oh cool some people are looking at it but teaching you get you know you tell a joke somebody laughs right away so mm. I do miss that. But anyway, life goes on. Um, now, I should say, and this is something I often like to add to this, is that I was lucky in that I was a situ- in a situation in which I could afford to take some risks, which is why I did. I felt it was my duty and my position to take risks that maybe other people who were just starting a family or had kids They didn't have another person's income to rely on if they needed to. I mean, one never wants to rely on another person's income, but I knew I was in a position in which I could take more risks. And so I did. Now, I didn't think I would get fired. I did. But um, I think that's important because I understand, you know, I know a lot of people who talk to me privately and they say, look, like I just had my second kid. Like, should I be honest about this? And and I actually urge caution to those people still. Mm. So um, I guess briefly uh, allow me some digression um, sure. on this point. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the things that you got canceled for, mm-hmm. uh, what's been called like race realism or yes. in other areas hereditarianism hereditarianism human biodiversity these are all roughly synonyms for the same kind of thing which is basically Mm -hmm. just observing that human populations on aggregate differ on very important traits among them uh iq yeah and um now i i will just say as like a baseline starting point because i still talk to people even friends of mine who Mm -hmm. will say things like uh alex why do you care about this right? right why why does it matter to you yes even if these differences exist even if um they may or may not be real you know this is sort of the thing they say to me um why why would you risk any amount of your professional or personal reputation uh mm-hmm. you know potential job opportunities etc putting yourself on the line to talk about these differences because you know isn't it just better if we sweep them under the rug and don't mm-hmm. acknowledge that they exist. Um, mm-hmm. So the first thing I, I will say before we get into like, and, and and by the way, for those listening, I don't want to take the time in this particular interview, just because we are short on time to uh, go through the entire argument for 
like the the evidence sure. you know for this theory and and whether it's true and and all right. that other stuff let's just take it as a point of fact that it's true that um important uh characteristics differ between groups of human populations when they're clustered together um and that among them is intelligence the best measure of intelligence we have being iq um why is it that this is something worth talking about because that is often the objection that people right. revert to it's a great it's a great question let me just say i i agree with you it, we would need like 4 hours to cover the evidence and address all of like the commonly forwarded arguments against the claims that i'm going to make right now however if we just accept if we just take like sort of the the minimalist position which is that there are in fact um differences in traits such as iq right now between populations in the united states let's stick to that circumscribed claim because that's what i'm going to talk about yeah. you're, you're saying here. regardless of putting regardless of about the hereditary nature exactly of okay so it's it's like forget about etiology do we have these differences and and, and the point that i want to stress is the, the the existence of the differences is not, in fact, controversial in the literature. So, for example, if you pick up uh, either Macintosh or Earl Hunt, those are the two most popular textbooks on intelligence, both of them will say, without much fuss, there are large differences. This is just a fact. We find these over and over since we first started testing intelligence. Mm -hmm. So... That, that's what I would say. We can just accept that. Then, of course, complicated debates about what causes that, and we're not going to get into that. Yeah. The question you asked is why talk about that? I think I have two, two answers to it. One answer is sheer curiosity, especially because I'm interested in human evolution and human nature. And I don't think you can understand it. You can't understand human evolution completely or, or human nature completely unless you understand variation. I mean, variation is basically, it's one of the underlying premises of evolution, right? You need mm -hmm. variation, variation and differential selection. Now, it turns right. out that individuals vary, and that's interesting. Yes. Sexes vary, and that's also interesting. And human populations or subspecies in different organisms vary and that's also varieties whatever you want to call them i mean pick your nomenclature mm -hmm. um, they vary and that is interesting so merely as like a, a passionate I, I don't want to sound pompous and call myself a scientist but explorer of the world i find that fascinating i think the more important and it, so it's sort of the more politically germane argument would be i believe that in the absence of addressing these differences that creates a lacuna. And in that lacuna, the woke narrative rises and spreads because you have no way to reject the woke narrative that all or roughly all social disparities, outcome disparities, income, status, job, academic distributions, whatever, that these are caused by racism. Like that's essentially the woke narrative. And you, you hear Kendi say this, you know, rather uh, uh, nakedly, right? I mean, he just asserts, if we have a race disparity, essentially we can assume, maybe he would say it's a heuristic, but we mm. can assume that racism caused it. 
I think that that is a divisive incendiary narrative that undermines important institutions in the West and creates racial animosity, by the way. And I made, I, I determined at some point around, let's say, 2018, that being honest about this issue and putting it into the mainstream was better than constantly surrendering territory to progressives. I mean, like if you look at what conservative, in, in my view, the conservative response to this is it's impotent and embarrassing. Like if you go to the National Review, it's essentially everything's always culture. Yeah, yeah. It's they always want to talk about culture. I father mean, absence, whatever. Yeah, I, I, I'm so I'm half Ashkenazi Jewish, right? Okay. And mm-hmm. this means that I come out on sort of like the winning side of this discussion, right? <laughs> right. Because right. as a group, Jews do have one of the highest, if not the highest, the uh, average highest, IQ. Yeah. And right. um, I will encounter other Jews, for example, on Clubhouse, who will say, yes, it's true that Jews are so successful because we're really smart. But the reason we're smart is just because we study more. Like yes. just because we care more about school. Right. Right. And I'm just like, <laughs> look, this is so ridiculous I know. Um, <laughs> as to be like absurd. Like if it was true that there's some sort of secret Jewish education program that you could go to and make mm-hmm. your IQ, let's say, 10 points higher. Right. Uh, then the like the average is 100. Jews have anywhere between like one 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 oh seven to like one twelve, depending on who's measuring. Right. Um, then you would want that education to be rolled out for like the entire world. You would yes. want that rolled out everywhere because <laughs> it would, would be an amazing uh, discovery that you can get people to be like, like almost a standard deviation smarter. Um, right. But right. It, it turns out you can't. It's um, also baffling, like from this view for, for, for whatever reason, um, Let's just take plaques for for this example. Oh no, let's take white gentiles because it's. Let's a little... take a less divisive group. Exactly. So let's take white gentiles. Mm-hmm. So from from this perspective, white gentiles bafflingly bafflingly reject this educational program that would boost our IQs by nearly a standard deviation. <laughs> right. Right. It's 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 really nonsensical when you think about it. I mean, it's incredibly implausible. But in this case, I mean, I, I think it can be a source of levity. It's kind of funny yeah. that people would, in other cases, it's unfortunately not so funny because it does lead to these very uh, divisive and ruinous beliefs and th- this sort of like perpetual rancor between the races. Because if you're telling mm. a group that the reason that you're di- you know disproportionately underrepresented, it's not because of like in intrinsic traits or or natural distributions it's because there's this group of people who invidiously discriminates against you has these uh, uh, untrue but hateful stereotypes and propagates yeah. those into the world i mean and they're literally they're literally acting to dumb you down that's the the yes, conclusion of the belief th- their argument is literally that white people have somehow worked together to suppress by a standard deviation the IQ of another group. Mm-hmm. Now, if that were true, of course, I would say that would be awful and that we, we should attempt to rectify it. Since it's not true, it's directing antipathy toward a group of people who do not deserve it. And mm-hmm. I, 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 that's what I 
I think um, I get this question a lot. The question you said people ask you, why do you care about this? Sometimes people will say, why are you obsessed about this? Which one, if you looked at my actual reading habits, I'm not obsessed with it. I would honestly rather read Shakespeare than mm -hmm. a book on race and IQ. I can promise you that. However, I am obsessed with the issue publicly because I hate prevaricating dishonesty and especially I hate the hypocrisy around this topic. Yeah. I, I think that it's loathsome and, and I think intellectuals are pusillanimous, that they're cowardly and it, it would be better if people were just more candid about this. Yeah. I mean, so so my my version of the answer to this question, the TLDR is like, okay, obviously it's divisive, mm -hmm. it's culturally toxic. Right. Um, but my version of the TLDR of this is like, look, if you're designing social policy mm -hmm. around uh something that is just not true, right, then you're just going to end up expending a tremendous amount of effort in a very counterproductive way. Yes. And so at the very least. If you actually cared about equity, if you actually cared, and I'm not saying that that's like something that we uphold here at the Hacking State podcast, <laughs> but I'm saying right. if I take the side of my my ideological opponents and sure. I say, this is what I actually care about, then you would take it very seriously. Yes, um, I agree. Uh, because it would mean that like you are basing a lot of your decisions off of a false premise. Yes. And so you should stop doing that. Um, <laughs> yes. That being said, I think we are going to stick a pin in this point sure. and sort Absolutely. of move on to the next next thing. Absolutely. I just wanted to get that out of the way because I yeah. it comes up so often that I have to like acknowledge I, I, it. Can I just say one thing on that though? I, sure. I do. I, I do just want to say that I understand uh, uh, people's concerns about it, and I understand that it can seem almost unseemly. I, I do understand that, but I, I hope what people will see. And this is why I work incredibly diligently to model this in my discourse. I don't, I, I, I don't think it's something to take lightly. So I, I don't want to make uh, invidious jokes or divisive comments or degrade anybody. I, I do think that that's important. I think it's important to come at this from a place of desiring the truth. Now, look, I have different my political views are obviously out of the mainstream, and that's fine. But I think we can do this with a with a sense of responsibility and politeness. And I, mm -hmm. I do try to uh, model that in my writing and my public behavior. Right, right. So you don't need to lose uh, respectability on either side. Um, right, right. Necessarily. I mean, we can have disagreements about the value of respectability, but... <laughs> Um, we can have disagreements about everything. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Right. All right. So uh, let's move on to then your newest venture, which is Aporia. Um, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of the backstory of how you came to be the executive editor um, and maybe just some details fill in for the listeners what Aporia is about? Um, it's sort of a new Substack magazine. It's focused mm -hmm. on sort of heterodox social science. What exactly does that mean? Um, who are the writers that Aporia is sort of courting, um, whose voices or 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 even just avenues of thought are sort of not being uh, recognized in mainstream mm -hmm. academic literature? Let's get into that. So sure. for starters, how did you get involved in Aporia? So, uh, I'll, I'll make the, the sort of what I consider the boring biographical details short. I mean, sure. I was on a, a 
podcast called Ideas Sleep Furiously, which mm-hmm. is what became Aporia. Yeah. And oh, okay. Yeah. So, so uh, the host and I, Matt and I, had a wonderful, sprawling, almost three-hour conversation, I think. And then we we stayed in talk. I didn't even know him before that. That was the first time I met him. Um, I don't recall exactly how we stayed in touch, but we would message, you know, from time to time after that. And then at some point, he, I guess, like he figured out that he was going to move in this direction more seriously and start it as like more of an official magazine. And he offered me the gig. At the time, I was editing, doing editing work for Quillette and. You know, I was always like, I, I want to be a, a a a diligent and fair employee. So I was careful to talk to them and to, you know, just test out the future, see what was happening. And then I made a decision that ideas sleep furiously because we weren't Aporia yet. Mm. <laughs> that would be best for my future because I had interests that I knew I wouldn't be able to pursue elsewhere, namely the Ray stuff. Well, we're inevitably, we'll have to talk about that a little bit for Aporia, but we won't have to get into too many of the details. But anyway, so I had these interests, you know, immigration, et cetera. I wanted to write about these things. And I, I just have these certain intellectual values that I think I, I would be allowed to flourish at this magazine. And Matt and I got along quite well. So I decided to join. Then we changed our name for various reasons. I mean, ideas sleep furiously. It comes from a Chomsky sentence, which right, is, yeah. you know, it's a funny sentence, but a lot of people would be like, what the heck's ideas sleep furiously? You know, green maybe ideas it's a, sleep furiously. <laughs> yeah. Colorless green ideas yeah, sleep yeah. furiously was his sentence, right? Mm. Um, so you know, they it's maybe it's a bit of an obscure reference. So we changed the name. Uh, and, and I just think Aporia sounds cooler, you know, it's kind of like, it's a riddle, it's a confession of Tao, it's sort of interesting, it sounds Greek and sort mm-hmm. of elevated, I suppose. <laughs> um, but about the more important topic, which is what are we doing? So I, I think Matt would give you a different answer. And we we just hired Noah, Noah Carl, which yes. I'm excited about, because I'm a huge fan of Noah. And he also exemplifies all of the values that I think are important, namely uh, a humility, but a, a a candor, a willingness to follow the evidence where it leads. And though, always uh, fair-mindedness, charitableness, and cordiality. Um, so we have Noah Carl now. But anyway, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going on a, a bit of a diversion. Um, my answer would be a little bit different, but here would be my answer. I see... Uh, what I was talking about before this this sort of niche that is more or less empty, and that is uh, talking, writing about human variation specifically, and like other issues that are related to human variation, although they may not have to uh, directly address human variation. For example, crime, intelligence. Um, immigration, demographic change, nationalism. These are all topics about which I am interested, but I don't I don't want to be tendentious or dogmatic about them. I want to have, you know, 
vehement but respectful debate about these issues and to write about them respectfully. And that's that's what I'm trying to do with Aporia. And if you look at my output, you can see that that I, I think that's what I'm doing right now. You know, I've written about human variation a number of times, but I've also written about um, everything from empathy to nationalism to uh diversity and is diversity actually good um, is diversity even a value yeah exactly is it a value should it be a value what does that even mean uh is it's like it, the the matter the measure of heterogeneity in a system yeah is, is that like a, a good thing yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly well, well i have a, my answer on that obviously is uh, that issue actually I get kind of worked up about that one because I just think it's a lie and a scam. And I think we should be more blunt about that one. But I'll set that aside for a mm. moment. So anyway, that that's what I try to do there. And I, I do see, I, I just think there's this, you know, there are several outlets that do write about these issues, but often from like a very obvious political perspective. Yeah. And although I have a political perspective and I will write about it, mm-hmm. as a magazine, we will publish a communist if you write a good article and you make a case even if you argue that Bo Weingart's view on human variation is wrong a hundred percent wrong yeah if you write a good article on that I would be happy I would in fact I would be uh thrilled to publish that and that's what we want to do we want to um we want to have cordial, but, you know, strident at times, if those aren't conflicting, <laughs> uh, intense debate and and about these topics that are incendiary um, because they're important. Like, for example, I think uh, human variation may be one of the more important intellectual topics, but demographic change may be one of the more important uh, political topics. And yeah. there are very few places right openly about that issue Uh, now matt is a little more interested in other things such as um embryo selection or or something or dysgenics i'm not as interested in those topics but i Mm. think they're important and then he handles those more than i would yeah okay so so there's a few different things uh there's sort of the interest in human variation it sounds like uh immigration is another topic uh and then human reproduction Uh, all three of which are kind of like taboo essentially and that's sort of the the thorough line um for the issues of focus right um is that uh, kind of in the current academic climate academic environment um a there's a lot of questions about these things that you're not even really allowed to ask and then Mm -hmm. b if you want to study them at all you have to sort of take a predetermined position uh in terms of your research orientation in the first place like you have to sort of go looking for an answer um rather than actually well, i would say you question. have to you have the answer already you have to look for evidence to get to your answer in today's mm. world right Work i backwards. think that's yeah exactly mm. exactly okay so and and you said though that it's not really so it's non-political in terms of like its focus is not on uh culture war issues or whatever's in the headlines necessarily um but you you know obviously the staff has their own political positions that they may or may not take in their pieces and Mm -hmm. then you're willing to publish people of differing ideologies as long as they can make a good argument um and 
is it really the focus is really on the debate itself, not necessarily putting out scientific findings? Is that correct? Oh, uh, no, I would say it's it's both. And, and as far as I would about the debate, what I would say is I, I don't know that it's I don't know that it's about the debate per se, but rather that I think it's important to have the debate. And I want to illustrate, and so does Matt, and I know Noah also agrees with this. Mm. We all think that the important thing about these issues, of course, I have my views and I'll argue for them. But the important thing about these issues, as you said, is like they're not debated, honestly, in academia. So in fact, like for example, if you if you heard a, if if you hold many of these views in academia, you don't even have to forward an argument because everybody agrees with you. So what I would like yeah. is for the people like let's suppose that um, now there are like take immigration. Okay. There are some people who argue uh, I- intelligently and reasonably mm-hmm. for much more generous or open immigration policies. Brian Kaplan's a right, great example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now I think Brian Kaplan, a number of George Mason faculty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Or Cato member, you know, people who work at Cato. Mm-hmm. My view is I I'm happy for those people because even though I disagree with them, in fact, I disagree with them vehemently they're willing to have a debate that is a very important debate. And I would prefer to interact with somebody who champions the exact opposite view from me. I I would rather interact with that person if he or she can debate with me than I would interact with somebody who largely agrees with me but won't debate with me. So that's what I think is important. But I don't want to... I don't want to say it's about the debate, though. I mean, it is about, look, like we have certain ideas that we think are correct that we would like to put out in the world, obviously. Yeah. But it's precisely because I think these ideas are correct and can withstand debate that I also think we should debate them. And what do you say to people who might argue that this... uh like rhetorical positioning is a kind of uh attempt at let's say right wing um uh victim sort of politics i i hear this a lot that like when people uh pretty much almost always on the right are Mm -hmm. saying that their ideas are not being heard or they're Mm -hmm. not being propagated in academia Right. Usually, like the first the first objection is, well, of course, they're not because they're morally and factually incorrect. But once <laughs> right. you get past that, um, the next thing that they say, and, and and you'll even see other people on the right levy this critique mm-hmm. is uh, you're you're playing you're, you're playing victim politics. You're trying to right. use your victimization as an opportunity to gain the upper hand in a moral argument. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people will say this about, you know, various kinds of like white identity you know issues and things like that that like you shouldn't be adopting the victim frame because that in itself is like an inherently kind of left-wing frame um what's your response to this yeah i mean i think there it's a complicated my attitude toward that is complicated because i think that there's at least a a kernel of truth to that criticism right like it, it is I think as humans, we're all 
vulnerable to playing the victim, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, I just think like in our in our moral stories in our head, we are either the hero or the victim. And if we're not the hero, it's because we're the victim of some iniquitous forces who are holding us back, right? Right. Why am I not as successful as other people? It must be that there's some conspiracy against me and my views. Well, and and we're we're deeply fragile creatures. We actually are yes. vulnerable. Absolutely. So yeah. oh, we yeah, will absolutely. all at some point be victimized. Right? You're right. That's a that's a good point. Fair, very fair point is that like we we do get victimized. Like human life is exploitation and victimization <laughs> you're right some of but, it but but i think the important thing is on the one hand you know if you really are the victim of, of some kind of uh suppression uh censorship etc that's one thing and you you should call that out and, and draw attention to it yeah i think we should resist uh, too easily or too rapidly declaring that we've been the victim of something. So I'll just give you a concrete example. I remember I, I worked with these uh, co-authors on this article and we got rejected. And I thought, I, I remember talking to them and I immediately said, of course, it's this is unfair. They were biased. Look at these reviews. They're not even, there's not even a patina of fairness here. And one of the, one of the co-authors said, look, like, you know, we can spend our time grousing about this, or we can try to make the article better and get it somewhere else. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's a healthy attitude. Like, maybe I want to go have two drinks and whine about it. And maybe we should be able to do that. But it is true that, like, you want to work hard and get the ideas out there and not fall prey to too excessive of a victim mentality. So I, I think that's a fair criticism. I guess what I would say, though, about, um, let's say, my complaints about academia or Aporia's complaints about academia and mainstream discourse, I think they're just factually correct. I mean, I, mm. I can't help it that it happens to be the case that academia, especially in the social sciences, is dominated by, is teeming with progressives who have no qualms about suppressing information which challenges their sacred values. And I think the same is true of mainstream media, even, by the way, mainstream conservative media, say the National Review. I'm a, I'm a happy reader of the National Review. I read I'm it not. every day. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I don't, I don't blame you. I, I do. I read it every day. I like to see what they're writing about and what their opinions are, and I listen to their podcast. But mm. there is you know, they they obviously avoid certain issues and the issues that they do talk about that are peripherally related to these taboo topics, they do so quite strategically. I, I think that's just a fact. I, I don't think we're, um, you know, ululating about being victims unfairly in this case, because it just is a fact that the mainstream, they, they do not talk about these issues. And I guess what I would say is, the fact that I get emails from people who tell me they love what we're doing and they love my article because they can't find this elsewhere suggests that my view of this is is correct, or at least other people share this view that they can't get these things from the mainstream. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my take on this is just like I will occasionally notice some of my uh, people I follow on Twitter or mutuals even getting like um you know really black pilled about things um mm -hmm. 
to use the doomer the doomer terminology <laughs> yes um and doing a lot of complaining and uh i'm just like look i think this is ultimately like very demoralizing to do mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so you should avoid doing it i mean yes it's true that uh there are going to be um hypocritical actions taken right by those in power what's the mold bug refrain it's like uh the 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 strong do what they must or sorry the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must yeah it's right? from Thucydides yeah yeah right yeah. right um I didn't know that but uh yeah. so you know this is just a fact of like uh political life um yes. that there is there is power and if you are not in power then you are a subject and you are going to be dominated at times uh unfairly um yes that being said uh i just think it's a um yeah it's a resentment like um encouraging like position to take yeah and you don't want to yes. fall into like any kind of trap of psychologically being like habituated to victim thinking and really all there is to do is to like do the work and do good work and uh and wait Right. And and maybe your reward won't actually come like that's I think that's a <laughs> that's, yes. part of fate that people who have not like struggled in a long time need to like remember mm -hmm. is that uh, sometimes you just lose for a really long time and yes. you have to still act. So. You still have to act virtuously despite the fact, because the yes. only way you win eventually is by uh is by acting in accordance with virtue um this is that was so placidly maturely and soberly spoken that i want to give that credit and that is that is the attitude that i aim for i cannot say i am always uh living up to my senecan or marcus aurelius type standards <laughs> mm, yeah. but i think an important thing you noted there was so the resentima, I think, is important because it is easy to be overcome with bitterness and to start hating people in a way that is not only is it toxic to the the sort of political discourse, but it's toxic to yourself, honestly. Like it just like blackens you. But also, um, sometimes you just lose. Yeah. Right. I think that's important. I I say this to people. I say, look, like a lot of my political preferences have already lost and I'm fully aware of that. And I've accepted that. And I'm not, I can't like hate the world because it didn't give me the political system that I ideally would like. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like when I get in the mood where it starts to cause me, you know, it starts to really like rankle me. Then I go out and I look at birds and the weather and I read romantic poetry and I feel a bit better and I get mm -hmm. more level headed. And I do yeah. agree with you, too. I, I think you're exactly right. You just again, to be fair, I, I'm sure I will complain about things and people can smack me in the head for for whining or something. But in general, I totally agree with you. And you just have to do the work. You have to put the ideas out there. And that that's why, by the way, that that's like another reason I love what we're doing at Aporia, because I, I'm just putting the stuff out there. Mm. Like, okay, look, like I can sit around and harass academics forever. What what is that going to accomplish? Now I'm actually writing articles, I'm putting up them out there, and I'm I'm trying to persuade people. Yeah. I mean, my my orientation towards the world is that there is a true 
reality out there and the world mm -hmm. like the fact that it manifests before us means that all of it like compiles at some level which means mm -hmm. that there can't be contradictions and the absence of contradictions of true contradictions now there might be a lot of apparent contradictions and we're partial creatures and we're limited by our perception and everything else but the absence of true contradictions means that if you are professing uh true things mm -hmm. that they will inevitably come to the surface um now again well, that doesn't little... mean you're going to reap your rewards I, right. I I think I think in America, especially, we have this idea of like, you need to be winning all the time. You must never be a loser. Your income right. must never go down. You must never have any, <laughs> you know, troublesome right. periods in your career. Right. Uh, and it just should just be this like, like steady upward trend your entire life. And the truth is that like, if you want to do something like really important and really meaningful, um, that a lot of people disagree with, yes. that's not going to be your life. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, I, I could uh, not agree with you more. That is a hundred percent right. Although, let me interject just to no, point out, I, I'm a, I'm definitely a little more morose than you are because I, I think that I, I'm not so optimistic about the, the like the eschatology you you paint you laid out there because I I don't know that truth ultimately prevails. I think truth is it's an annoyance right it, it, it's i i think colin wright said it, it it's like a, a a thorn in in the foot of an ideology that's wrong like it's mm. always there and it's annoying and they have to kind of cover it up and like put a band-aid over it or whatever but i think the history of humans makes pretty clear the fact that truth does not <laughs> and um that's just how it is you know that, yeah. that is just how it is and i i, I don't I well, think in, a, in a cosmic sense, it does, but maybe in a human, like anthropologically, it does not. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right? Exactly. So it's like how many truths have been, how many truths have, uh, you know, have died in the head of the speaker. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Gr great point. And further, another thing, and this is something. Um, th this is, it, it's sort of a, a taking this from Nietzsche, but. And this is one of the things I think is the most tragic about human beings is that you can be willing to die for something that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Passion of belief does not bear a correspondence to reality. Right, right. People have had passionate beliefs about absolutely risible ideas and have died for them. <laughs> so that's just how it goes. But People I do die for democracy. <laughs> People are dying for democracy right now. Um are you a, a integralist? <laughs> I'm not an integralist, no, but okay. uh yeah, I have I have qualms with democracy. Um, I do too, but those are that's like a whole yeah, that's a three hour yeah lo lovely podcast, but different one, yeah. Right, yes, yes, uh different show. Um okay, so I guess we we've we've kind of gotten a, gone along a more philosophical bent about you know the nature of truth and justice and whether you know, you get your just desserts for speaking the truth and being truthful. <laughs> yes. I've at least personally found that, uh, like I was in a position earlier this year where I was like kind of deciding whether like I was going to get back into podcasting again, whether I wanted to like, um, I was wavering on presenting myself online under my own identity. Mm -hmm. And I had a pseudonymous Twitter account, um, 
And I decide I, I had some conversations with some people about it, people who are anonymous, people who are not anonymous. And my decision was basically I was convinced by the argument that if you come out as you really are and and you present to the world um, in an authentic way, then, yeah, you are going to be uh, potentially punished for doing so. Like there are mm -hmm. going to be avenues and doors that are closed to you that yeah. people who are more cowardly and unwilling to uh, say what they mean under their true name uh, mm -hmm. will, will, will have that optionality preserved. Right. But the, the upside is that you actually get to surround yourself with the people that like know what you think yes. and, uh, and actually like, you know, agree with you, or at least yes. are willing to tolerate you. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I found that, you know, I don't want to be like overly wistful about this, but I have found that uh, it is the best way to sort of end up in a place where you would like to be. Yeah. Uh, because a lot of people I know are um, are hiding what they actually think and mm -hmm. they're in places that they don't want to be um, where they can't speak freely, where their friends don't even know what they actually believe politically or otherwise. And they're just like trapped in this in this like cocoon that they've created for themselves because they're unwilling to take the risk and deal with the pain of rejection of, mm -hmm. you know, losing a job, potentially uh, whatever might, you know, entail. I mean, there is real financial loss. There is real yeah. career yeah. Um, damage that happens as a result of deciding to like be a public person. And not everybody needs to be a public person. But if you right, if you are going to say things in public uh, and you feel the need to do so, mm -hmm. then it's just uh, I think it's just an assessment of like, Okay, what kind of life do you want to live? And my conclusion was that um, the more you hide, the more you become a thing that hides. And a thing that hides mm -hmm. is detestable. So I largely share your, I, I mean, I think what you, there's a lot of truth to what you said there. And in fact, I mean, people may find this surprising, but one of my intellectual heroes, at least in my 20s, was Noam Chomsky. And I actually did take this lesson from him. Although obviously he would abhor my views <laughs> because, you know, you are an imperialist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, you know, he said it's about looking yourself in the mirror in the morning. And I, I do feel that way when you're mm. you're right. You, I've lost literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. But. And now, again, I, I do want to be clear. I'm lucky. I understand that. So I'm not trying to complain about that. I'm just being honest. There is a cost to that. But you're absolutely correct that if you are honest about your views, you don't have to remember what you said privately. That's what I like to say. Like, yeah. I don't want to be a person who's constantly cowering in the corner thinking, I hope nobody tells the public what I said what my real views are. And I know a lot of these people. I knew them in academia. It's in fact, it's one of the most disconcerting things about being in academia. It was just witnessing the utter cowardice of these professors who would tell me one thing privately and do completely, and you know, espouse completely different views publicly. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I imagine they were you know, rather trepidatious about 
being honest with people privately even because they were always afraid of getting like having those secrets as it were secrets divulge also they were just constantly anxious that they would be anyway you know mm. and that's that's not a way to live in my view my view is you're exactly right you state your views clearly charitably and honestly publicly to the best of your ability admitting that you could always be wrong and being willing to update those views and then the people, and as I think it's important, as you said, it's not just people who agree with you. It's also people who can tolerate your view. So I have, I don't have a lot of friends, I wouldn't say, but I have a lot of people I talk to, and many of them disagree with me strenuously about these issues, but at least I know they're willing to have the debate and they're not going to throw me under the bus publicly. Right, right. Yeah. And like it, it, I, I, yeah, I've observed that too. There are, I wouldn't say that you necessarily can like trust everyone who will tolerate you, but you at least know that like uh, they're not uh, afraid of you or like they don't have some right. sort of weird like sneaking suspicion about you. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, you, that you're like you secretly have some nefarious like yeah. you're, you're some nefarious being who has some you know wicked designs on the world. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's uh, comforting, I guess. Um, it is. <laughs> so who are some of the other academics? There's obviously yourself. There's Noah Carl, the mm -hmm. other members of the team. Who mm -hmm. are some of the other academics that have sort of started to find a bit of a home uh, at Aporia? And um, yeah, that would be my first question. And then the second, mm -hmm. there's sort of a additional question attached to that, which is... Um, have any people that are currently in academia, not like ex-academics or exiled academics or, um, you know, would-be academics who had to go into the private sector, are there any people in academia who've used Aporia as just a, a, a more open platform to write some stuff that maybe, you know, they'd have a hard time getting somewhere else? Yes. And I would say people have done that. Some people have probably used pseudonyms, so I actually don't want to go too much into to that. Oh, of course, Just, we're not going to divulge yeah. anyone's identity. Oh, right, right. No, I know you're not trying to, <laughs> not trying to get that out of me, but I, I just the reason for my. Uh, reticence there is is precisely because I want those people to do so when they're when they want to. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, there uh, some academics and. We've had wonderful interviews on podcasts with yes. uh, everybody from Brian Kaplan to Louise Perry to Paul Bloom. So, so some Sir David Geary, I was I interviewed um, Toby Young, uh, just very interesting people uh, on the podcast. And I think probably people feel more comfortable with a podcast than with writing an article because they feel as though it's a little bit more distant from your brand and it's just like an hour, hour and a half conversation. But there are some academics um, who are probably going to write for us in the future. And I do, I would say I, I've actually, uh, so I, I would say I'm naturally, as I said, a little more morose, pessimistic perhaps, but I've actually become optimistic about what's happening in the past five to 10 months. I, I really do think there's an opening. Maybe, maybe part of that's because Elon has Twitter and that's allowed discourse to expand there. Mm. But I also think there's a lot of pent up 
rage against the the overreach of wokeism. I think a lot of people are fed up with it. And, and, and maybe even interestingly, the overreach of trans issues. I mm. think what that causes is people to become skeptical of the status quo, to become dubious of things that experts claim. Because you have people claiming men can get pregnant, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait a second. What this is, you know, transparent balderdash. If these people are wrong about this, maybe they're wrong about these other things. And yeah, maybe, sort of like a mass scalement amnesia. Yeah, like maybe, maybe the moral fervor with which they were attacking these other views is actually hollow, and behind mm. it, there is no truth. And I was wrong for thinking, oh yeah, these people must be racist if they would challenge this, or they must be sexist if they would challenge this. So I think because of that, uh, discourse is opening up a bit. And the things that we've been writing about, I think some academics will start writing. And, and that's my hope. Yeah. Now, I, I, I can't, you know, it's hard because at the same time, the discourse is opening up on Twitter and m maybe things are becoming a little more... I, I, maybe they're they're moving slowly toward the free speech side there. I think academia might be purifying itself precisely by boiling out, as it were. Well, <laughs> I, I think academia is actually making itself basically less relevant to yes. at least the cultural discourse. Yes, I right. Especially the social sciences, right? I always think mm. it's important to because like, look, like, they're doing great things in physics and chemistry and even genetics, like as long as they're not talking about like, you know, race, right? They, they have a lot of euphemisms, et cetera. But the social sciences, I think you're exactly right. They're becoming less relevant to public discourse because they're so obviously partisan and people have recognized that. Especially, you know, another thing I didn't mention was the, the COVID thing. Like yeah. I, I'm, so tired of that discourse but i do think it's true that expert overreach once again and and promoting transparent nonsense caused a backlash and people are now just more skeptical of quote-unquote experts so yeah i mean i agree that i it does feel as if there's a as if like the vibe has shifted um so to speak mm -hmm. but i and, and and yeah, it seems to me like just like normal people, not like people who are too online or like internet radicals or people that are part of like fringe political ideologies, which is a lot of my friends. Um, mm -hmm. It does feel to me like a lot of just like normal people who are not that political um, either way are getting like kind of like tired of this stuff. Yeah. And there does seem to be a groundswell of like, I wouldn't I don't know if it's rage per se. But at least like frustration. Mm -hmm. Um and yeah, and and you know, this is like this, this is remarked upon like quite often, but like one of the like results of this is that like anyone who's outside of like the mainstream on like really anything, whether it's and sometimes it's just one topic. Mm -hmm. Um, like I know a guy who's like a pretty hardcore partisan democrat, like a very cynical person. I don't actually like this individual very much, but they are like not down on the party line on trans issues, right? Mm -hmm. Like they have kids uh, and they just like, don't believe it. And they think right. it's wrong. And 
even just like one or two issues that where you deviate from the party line basically puts you in a camp with like a bunch of right wingers. Yeah, like I know exactly. another guy who's yeah. like literally a lifelong Democratic operative. OK, he worked in polling for Democrats. I won't reveal more information about who this may may or may not be. Um who basically spends all of his time now talking to people that are like on the right because right he, he because those are the only people he can talk to about his like skeptic skepticism not even yes. like he's made up his mind um but he's like skeptical about certain things and he's just discovered that he like cannot talk to any of his political allies about it um yeah and i think that that the important thing with that is there are those issues those sort of sacred issues um from which if you dissent the left will crush you, right? Yeah. They don't have any mercy for you. And at that point, what happens to that individual is they naturally, because we want to talk to people who are tolerant of us, they start talking to people who will listen to them. And I'm like, oh, great. I'll listen to you on that. And then they're more likely to listen to that. You know, they think, okay, maybe the same thing that happened to me on say trans issues is what happened on race like maybe it was uh you know like a excessive moral response and maybe there's some truth to these things and maybe i should just listen to this at least i i think that actually happens a lot and it, it, you were saying it reminds me of definitely people i know who are uh, have been voted democrat literally every time they've ever voted you know the professors at small reasonable universities and they're just uh, rage yeah rage maybe maybe that's too strong of a word but they're they're fed up with it hmm. they're tired of it they're tired of everybody kowtowing to this ideology and they <laughs> consequently they become much more open to right-wing views on other topics um and yeah, so I, I'm I'm a little bit hopeful about this. Now, I I don't I don't have any illusions about it. I think we're just going to be a very polarized country, and a lot of these issues, like you and I, will be able to talk about it, and then some progressive will think we're terrible human beings, and that's just how it's going to be. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I want to sort of get out of the culture war focus. Just because like this show is uh, itself all similar to Aporia. It's not an explicitly political show. We sure. don't have a ideological axe to grind. Right. Um, although I have my own views and people <laughs> sure. care for what of those course. may or may not be. Um, so <clears throat> um, I guess one sort of question that I think lies at the center of what it is that you're trying to do with Aporia and is tied in more broadly with like just general themes of governance and what is the best regime and you know striving towards the good and, and so forth that goes all the way back to plato's republic sure. is this question of um open epistemology and whether improving our epistemology necessarily implies improvement of society or oh yeah if in fact there are certain truths let's say notable lies, right? Yes. That that should not be revealed. And therefore right. it would be better if we don't reveal them. Yeah. One one example of this that that's like that I so so I have this theory about George Soros and what okay. he's doing with the Open Society Project. Mm -hmm. Um which is like based on the fact that like 
his whole foundation and his theory of finance and politics is heavily influenced by Karl Popper's work, The Open Society and Its Enemies, right? Mm -hmm. And The Open Society and Its Enemies makes the argument that science needs to not be too politicized because if you start politicizing science, you then close off the flow of information and you want right. free flow of information uh, to get to the truth, okay? Right. If I take this framework and I put myself... If I'm trying to imagine what what it is that's driving George Soros and I say, OK, I'm not going to just accept the framing that he's an evil cartoon villain who hates the world, although it's hard for me not to. Um, if I say that I want to figure out why this guy thinks that what he's doing is good, one argument that I could come up with is that a lot of what the open society is doing is like stress testing, let's say, the United States, let's say the judicial system or the prosecutorial system of the United States. And therefore he's just, he's just like, it's an almost um, left-wing accelerationism where mm -hmm. you dramatically increase the flow of information in the system so that you can find the weak points and you, ex you, you keep like poking at the weak points and exploiting them over and over again until the system fixes itself. Mm -hmm. In that vein of thought, sorry, I wanted to just sort of like, no, that's okay. Get that idea Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Um, are there things that you think are not worth exposing? What is your view on sort of like radical open epistemology? It's, I think this is this is one of the most difficult and fascinating questions with which I have wrestled for many years, and I still don't have a strong belief about it. So to be clear, if you go back to Plato in the Republic, he, well, at least through Socrates, but we can assume Socrates is standing in for Plato. Socrates uh, propounds the view that we should maybe promulgate noble lies a couple of times about uh, the, the metals and the, the hierarchy being associated with more noble metal as it Not were. only that, the, the stories that are told to children, the music yes, the you story, can listen yes, to, I, I, there's so a heavy we, amount of censorship involved. Very, very, so, but, okay, so, like, we could distinguish between lies and censorship, right? So, yes, definitely. Lies by omission, right? Yeah, exactly. Lies by omission and, and lies by explicit, explicit like, commission. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, because at one point he advocates for eugenics via a lie that there will be this fake lottery that puts people together. Right, right. <laughs> so we were, I wouldn't endorse that, certainly. Um, but the, the censorship thing, uh, uh, Plato was, you know, he was very, he, he's a brilliant stylist himself, a brilliant, probably could have been a great dramatist. And so he recognizes the power of art and he was quite worried about it. I, I, so I think like it's easy to dismiss Plato, right? Because, you know, look, we live in a, in a much more uh, affluent and safe society than Plato did, right? Mm -hmm. Plato lived at a time when war, I, I mean, not war was not only an ever present danger, but you could die in that. Like war is common now, but most people for most people it's just uh, uh something they have to imagine because they're not actually going to be on the front line so i think it's you know i i i'm rather tolerant of plato's views and i think you know it's a different time he's thinking about these things seriously and he's attempting to grapple with the most difficult uh issues that political philosophers can grapple with 
I don't. So obviously, I wouldn't endorse the kind of censorship Plato would endorse. Do I think that there are some truths that are so divisive or so, I don't know, like undermining of the social fabric that you probably shouldn't attempt to spread them? Yeah, I think there might be truths like that. I honestly do. Um, I haven't. I haven't come up with one that's an obvious uh, target for that category that I would I would definitely say, yes, this truth is just, it, it's so pernicious that if it were ever widely believed, society would fall apart. But I do think it's reasonable to think maybe there are some uh, ideas that you should keep within a tiny group of people and debate them and you can handle those. Uh, and I know that sounds, uh, you know, unapologetically elitist. I, I'm open to the evidence. I am. I, I don't have a good answer here. And I've wrestled with this for a long time. And it is. I mean, and we are unapologetic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I, because here's a theory. I'll, I'll lay this theory out. So mm. I think it is actually the case that there are different, let's call them channels or domains of discourse, and they have different standards and expectations. And that one of the things that led to uh, the great awakening in the academy mm. is the, the fact that discourse now would leak out of the academic domain and into the public domain. So I'll give you a concrete example. In a lot of philosophy classes, like the ethics classes, you would do these thought experiments that many people would consider grotesque and shocking. Like, right. you know, well, what if you gave the person a drug and then somebody had sex with the person, but they didn't know it? Okay. And you can see where it goes from there. It's like challenging utilitarianism. In an ethic, in a philosophy classroom, an ethics uh, uh, classroom, I think you should be allowed to have that thought, you know, you should play that thought experiment out and have robust debate about it. But you can see what happens if one student records the professor saying that and then goes and puts it on Twitter. And now a 40 year old mother who doesn't understand why would you be doing such a perverted thought experiment? Mm. She gets a hold of it. And then she retweets it and is like, what is this vile filth that are teaching in philosophy? And then it goes viral, right? Because it's almost, it's like a different domain of discourse. This is not the thought experiment that you would call your mother and say, hey, I've got this cool thought experiment. Let's talk about it, <laughs> right? So there are different domains of discourse and they have different rules and expectations. And I think when they contaminate each other, they actually, like the rules of one start to bleed over into the rules of another. and maybe that suggests that we should be a little bit cautious with some things that like we as philosophers might like to talk about, but you don't need to talk about them on CNN or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> that's oddly enough, often a defense that's given for something like critical theory, right? So like mm -hmm. critical theory comes out yes. of critical legal studies. It was supposed to be this sort of like, very abstract legal theoretical model, you know, intersectionality and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it was taught in like law schools in the late eighties and early nineties. And it's like, when you talk about how there are different domains, 
maybe it shouldn't be taught to like and, and like you can argue about the validity of the theory itself and whether it should be taught in law at all but right like independent of that like maybe it shouldn't be taught to your kindergartner <laughs> like maybe it's not <laughs> right. a good idea to start talking about critical race theory to a bunch of 12 year olds um or even honestly a lot of undergrads um mm -hmm. it may not have the framing and also at this point you know obviously these ideas develop they they they're sort of like viruses they kind of evolve they take on new forms um what it often gets presented as is not really what it was like originally like you can go right. back and read the foundational papers for a lot of these ideas intersectionality critical theory etc and the like dumbed down like you know college freshman introductory version of it is like yes. really nothing like that often right um right it's a much so, more fatuous version i would say and and yeah like so what do you think about, I, I mean, because I would even make the argument that I, I would keep race out of K through 12. I don't think that's a free speech issue either. You, you know, I see people, David French and Chatterton Williams, and there was another author on the piece. They wrote, I think it was in the Atlantic. It might have been the New York Times, like a piece defending, you know, CRT in school on a free speech basis. But uh, look, what would happen? We know what would happen. Yeah. If a fifth grade teacher taught the bell curve, that teacher would be fired in minutes, right? I mean, it would be remorseless termination. Same thing if somebody taught Rushton's race, evolution, and behavior. And, mm -hmm. and the reason is like K through 12, like, look, I, I, I think they, they can engage in dialectic, obviously. You can have some debate on things when you're in K through 12. But mostly what you're attempting to do is develop like fundamental skills, like mathematical skills, reading skills, et cetera. You're not debating the most controversial and intractable problems known to humans. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm willing to just say, look, like you get into college, it's a different game. You know, mm. I, I'd be I, expose them to all kinds of ideas. And then, look, if you don't like the ideas that one college teaches, go to a different college. But K through 12, I'm much more open to Ruf, like Chris Rufo's arguments that we should mm -hmm. just get CRT out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. I think it's like terribly divisive. It yeah. causes all kinds of weird dynamics among the children. Um, and and often it's just like a way for the teachers, you know, whatever. We don't need to go harp on yeah. this. It's I think everyone listening probably knows roughly. Yeah, what we but think you. About it. But the the question is a more abstract one, and and non non not it's political, but it's not partisan, which is this open epistemology. It's it's yeah. a very fascinating thing to think about, and and what what you're describing is a sort of like gated epistemology where a republic, I would call it right. Like that's how I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, right. It's like. <laughs> It's not if a you can pure keep democracy. It. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you can, <laughs> and the way you keep it is you have like filtering systems. Mm -hmm. Now, again, importantly, that doesn't mean you use the the like sort of iron hand of the law to squash ideas or something. I mean, I think mostly what happens the, the way you maintain these these domains and the way that they. Uh, I don't want to say they're completely autonomous because obviously they interact with each other, but the way they remain separate is mostly through social norms, which is, it, it, I think you should use social norms when you can, because obviously the law 
is it's important. Well, it's important. too costly. It's too costly to use the law everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And enforcement's costly. And yeah. also law is inevitably dumb because it can't make exceptions because mm. once you start making exceptions with the law, you undermine the law. So yes. yeah, it's, I would it's say, a law. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Um, I, I think, uh, I think we've left people with a lot of interesting, um, things to mull over for themselves. Obviously we're not going to get to the bottom of a lot of these questions here today. Um, <laughs> Bo, it was uh, it was great speaking to you once again. I'm glad to have you back on. Um, yeah, glad to see it. that you're doing well uh, and with Aporia. Um, before we head out, uh, where can people find you? Where can people uh, find you and also more about uh, the magazine? Uh, they can find me on Twitter. I don't remember my Twitter handle, so I apologize for that. You can put it up if we find it. It'll be in the notes. All, all okay. this will be in the notes. But if you search my name, you will find me and then you will find links to the magazine. And I, I would just, um, there. I have a couple long pieces there. I would ask readers, or, or I'm sorry, listeners, if they're curious, please read those pieces. The, the, I think it represents the best of what we're trying to do. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And thank you. Um, see you guys later.